told me. Perfect. Frenzy One, please stand with me. We'll sing as loud as we can. Onward, Christian Soldier.
it's tomorrow so keep it fresh and on our mind so ladies meeting tomorrow but why don't we take some praises this afternoon if anyone has a, a testimony David yeah yeah good very good David had a good ride along yesterday with uh, Kennebec County Sheriff's Deputy. Is that what it'd be technically considered? Yep. Very good. So, got to learn a lot, Brother Elliot. Mm -hmm. Had a few days of camping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going, coming back. Anybody else have a praise or a testimony? We had yes, thankful for a godly wife. Amen. Amen. I'm thankful for that too. I am. Anybody else? You guys almost dress the same too. Any other praises or testimonies? Thankful for Brother Elliot's lesson this morning in Sunday school. That was a blessing. Thankful we got to go visit the Hopkins a couple days ago and had a great time of fellowship and enjoyed that. Thankful for our church family. Keep Brother Joe in your prayers. Um, just continued healing. I know he, they planned on being here today, but his back was bothering him. Um, Keep Lacey in your prayers. She's traveling down to Pennsylvania, so going to visit her mom for, I don't know, a week or two. Um, what's that? Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And, uh, so, all right. Well, this afternoon, we're going to study key number three. Key number three in our Bible study. Only 25 keys to go after this? I'm just kidding. Not really. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, no, there's not 25. There's like, I think it's, I don't know, 10 or 13, 10 or 12, something like that. So, All right. So the blank, actually, you know what? I'll go ahead and open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our study. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that we can come together. Thank you for this time to study your word and um, study how to study your word. And I pray this afternoon you would work in our hearts and in our lives, help us to um, be challenged and helped by what we learn and hear today and uh, maybe we are reminded of today if these are things that we already know. Um, but Lord, I just pray you'd help us to remember to um, do a right job, an effective job at studying your word and work to make sure we 
we get what you want us to get out of it and not something else. Lord, we just pray you'll do it. Bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So the first blank, keep verses in their context. Blank is context. Probably could have guessed that one. Um, maybe. Context. And I will, I will say this week's lesson kind of goes along pretty well with last week's of rightly dividing the word of truth because rightly dividing and context are pretty closely related. You know, context kind of helps us with that. Um, our theme verse for this week's lesson, our key verse is 2 Peter 3.16. It's right in your notes there. Um, 2 Peter 3.16. We've read this one in, in the past. It says, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that's where we get our word wrestle from. They rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. And, uh, you know, sometimes people can wrestle the word of God. They can have New Testament verses that they use to try and show things that are incorrect. We'll look at a couple a little bit later today um, where they show that you can lose your salvation. They believe you can lose your salvation and they use these verses uh, out of their context. Since we're studying context today... Some would tell you that you got to work to go to heaven or, and yeah, anyways. So people can come up with something or that you got to be baptized to be saved. We looked at that one uh, a couple weeks ago. So if, if they teach you got to be baptized to be saved and they believe that baptism saves them, then they're using New Testament scripture to send themselves to hell. So it would seem that what they've got is Bible to prove their point, but they're wrong and they're, they've wrestled the scripture to mean what they want it to to their own destruction. They're using the word of God and they're, they're sending themselves to hell as a result. Key thought, every cult in the world that uses the Bible along with every false teaching in the world is rooted in biblical truth. Blank there is biblical truth. That's not a period there, so keep listening. That has been taken out of context. The second blank is context. In other words, it is biblical truth that has been misplaced or misapplied. So those two blanks are misplaced and misapplied. It is dangerous to not carefully study the Word of God and make sure we understand it correctly, we interpret it correctly. Key quote here, a text, first blank is text, without context. So first blank is text. Second blank is context. Third blank is a pretext. A text without context is a pretext. A lot of text in there. What's that mean? Well, it's a pretext is giving a reason or motive that cloaks the real reason or pretense. So in other words, you're saying something that has no context around it for us to understand what is actually meant by the person who said it. Therefore, we misunderstand it or misapply it. The real reason for what was said is hidden, so we, we basically can make it mean whatever we want to. Kind of like a few weeks ago on Wednesday when we studied the uh, Acts chapter 2, 
uh, verse 38, uh, be baptized in the name, or repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And we saw that that was speaking to Israel, not speaking to people who were uh, learning about being saved. So, principle number one, first thing we need in determining the context is to decide or figure out who the audience is. Who is the audience? Identifying the audience is crucial to keeping verses in their context. The Bible is written to three groups of people. Anyone know who they are? Besides Elijah, Brother Elliot? The church, yeah, the church, yeah. Yep. I knew Elijah knew because we've talked about it, so. No, no, no. That's why I wanted someone else to answer. So 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, if we flip over there, 1 Corinthians 10. And actually, Brother uh, Faggart talked about this when he was here as well. In verse 32, it says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. So um, you know, those are the three groups that the word of God is written to. Uh, principle number two is content. Not content, but content. The Bible does say we're to be content, but not to be complacent. There's a difference there. This is not either of those. This is content. Just to be clear. The English language is very simple to understand. All right. So biblical context is determined by keeping the specific verse being examined and interpreted within the context that has been revealed within the content of the whole book of the Bible in which it is located. So, in other words, if we're studying a verse in Hebrews, we have to look at what is the book of Hebrews actually about? What is the purpose? Why? Well, first, who is the audience? Who, then who was it written, or what was it written for? What is the book of Hebrews trying to say? And then we can look at the the chapter or the, the smaller context, and then we can look at the verse. So if we take, well, we're going to talk about it here in a second. So here's our, we got two examples we're going to look at, and then we'll be done. Uh, so we'll work through these, kind of using this, these principles to understand. So Galatians 5.4 is a verse that has been taken out of context to mean something that it doesn't actually mean. Probably most of you will be familiar when you hear the verse. It says, Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, that ye are fallen from grace. So, some have used this verse to say that you can lose your salvation, that you, if you've essentially sinned or you've put yourself back under the law, or you're, then they say that you've lost your salvation. In other words, you go from trusting Christ to trusting your works, so you're lost now. Um, so that's how some would take this to mean. So, Here's our breakdown of the different con contextual categories. First, the Bible. Why is this book in the Bible? So to teach the fact that Gentiles, blank is Gentiles, are free from the Old Testament law or Judaism. So it's to teach us that Gentiles are free from the Old Testament law or Judaism. What were they doing? They were coming in and saying, 
you have to be circumcised if you want to stay saved. We're going to look at it here in a second. Galatia, just so everyone knows, is modern-day Turkey. If we turn over to Acts chapter 15, verse number 1. Acts 15, 1. It says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. So they were the Judaizers were coming into Galatia and trying to get the Gentile believers there. They were trying to get believers, period, to live under the law. Uh, can I tell you this? There are still Judaizers today. They're still out there. All right, so Galatians 2.21, for back in Galatians, we're over in Galatians. Galatians 2, chapter number 21, tells us what happens when we try to make people live under the law who have been saved by grace. It says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If I have to live by the law to be righteous, even after I've received Christ as my personal Savior and His righteousness has been applied to my account, then I'm frustrating what God means grace to be. I'm, I'm confusing. I'm causing contradictions. It's in other words, he says, then Christ is dead in vain. If I've still got to live and keep my righteousness in the law, when Christ's righteousness has been applied to my account. So then, within the book itself, so we've got why the book is in the Bible. So what is the real teaching of, or purpose of this book? It is not a book to teach us how to be saved. Is there salvation in the book of Galatians? Sure. But the purpose of the book is not to teach us how to be saved. It is a book to teach saved people how to be spiritual. That's the purpose of it, is to teach people who are saved to live spiritual lives, to be spiritual. Galatians 5, to walk in the Spirit. So then within our chapter, chapter 5, what is the context of the chapter? It is to teach us to walk. And still in Galatians, if we look in chapter 5 at verses 16 and then verse 25. Verse 16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So it's, it's teaching us how to walk, but specifically how to Walk a spiritual walk. Yes, Brother Ron? I would agree with that when you get to chapter 5. The yeah. First chapter is correction. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. It's dealing with correction because of the Judaizers, right? Uh, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've studied the whole book. Sure, yeah, yeah. Which most of the epistles start out as correction and then teach spiritual application. Some of them are mostly correction. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. There is certainly correction, especially at the beginning 
of the book of Galatians um, because they had Judaizers that came in and were trying to teach them that Gentiles had to live under the law. So that's why the book, the purpose of the book, or the reason the book's in the Bible is to teach that Gentiles are free from the law, that they don't have to live under the law. That was the correction. Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, Paul understood that there's a priority that must be set in action, into action, before you can walk, and that is you must first learn to stand. Before you can walk, you've got to be able to stand, right? Every baby that ever walked, every person that ever walked, started out pulling themselves up on things and holding themselves up, and then eventually they're able to step away from that thing and stand on their own, and eventually they take steps and so on and so forth. You get the, the process. So before we can walk, we've got to stand. The problem the Galatians had was that they could do neither, walk or stand, because they had fallen. Remember? You're fallen from grace. Uh, what is Paul's solution to their fallen state? The solution was not for them to get saved. Here in chapter 5, he wasn't saying, you need to get saved. That's what you've got to do to fix the fact that you've fallen. But instead, it was to get up, the, second, the first blank, second blank, to stand. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What happens is, and the yoke of bondage is talking about is living under the law. That's what he's saying. He's saying, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Don't enter back into the bondage and be, go back into essentially living like you're in a fallen state. You're not. Stand. Walk in the Spirit. Live a spiritual life. That's the, that's the message that's being delivered here. So what is... Yeah, we just read that. So what is the verse's context? The next one is the verse. What does the verse actually say? Verse 4 of chapter 5, Christ has become of no effect unto you, Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. So, not that through the sin of your life, you fall out of God's grace. First blank is sin, second one is grace. But, that through your attempts to do righteousness, R-I-G-H-T-E-O-U-S-N-E-S-S, Hopefully that was slow enough. But that through your attempts to do righteousness by the law, you have fallen from the very thing you trusted to make you righteous in the first place. In other words, you trusted the grace of God. You trusted Jesus Christ, and through His grace you were saved, and now you're no longer trusting the very thing that you believed in to be saved. You're now trying to add to your salvation. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yep, absolutely. So what does that do? It causes them to take their eyes off of Christ, like we were talking about, we sang about this morning, and what He has done, and instead put them on self and what I can do. You know, it puts it on me, what I have to do, what I shouldn't do, what I should do, and it just, it brings the attention back onto ourselves. Uh... So there was, where are you? Um, after righteousness. Righteousness by the law. Yep, sorry. You have fallen, yeah. And then the next blank, 
after that is grace. The funny thing, so I, I reread this after I'd already printed them all out, and it kind of the wording reads a little weird. Sorry about that. So the funny thing is that the people who say this verse is directed towards those who have lost their salvation, the reality is the verse is actually written to those who are telling you that you have to live under the law to keep your salvation. So they're saying, ha ha, this verse is to all you people who are losing your salvation. And the reality is, no, ha ha, the verse is about you, buddy. <laughs> it's talking to you. You're the one who's fallen from grace because you're trying to force people to live under the law when the Bible says that we're not under the law. Uh, so they're trying to use the verse incorrectly. So that one's fairly simple, probably one that's been studied many times and uh, probably folks understood already what that verse is saying. It's not that you've lost your salvation. We've fallen from the doctrine of grace is really what it is and are back into trying to live under the law. The other example that we'll look at is in Hebrews. This is another one that is used to, by people to say that we can lose our salvation. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 says, for it is impossible. That's a strong word, isn't it? You know what that means in the Greek? No, I'm just kidding. You know what that means? It means impossible. <laughs> so it's real complicated. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So that one is a little bit more of a doozy or difficult, I think, and maybe hasn't been as thoroughly studied because it's a little more confusing. But if we go back to what we learned last week about rightly dividing the word of truth, who is the book of Hebrews written to? Jews, right. It's not written to you and I. It's written to the Jews. So we have to start with that foundational understanding. I believe even a step further, at this point at least, it's actually writing to lost Jews, Jews who are not saved. Um, so um, that's where I would go with this, but we'll get into that a little bit more. So we look at the context of the Bible. Why is this book in the Bible? It is to open the eyes of the Hebrews or Jews, to their Messiah. It's to open the eyes of the Hebrews to their Messiah. Uh, over in Romans chapter number 11, and verse number 25, it says, For I would not brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So in other words, the eyes of Israel were supernaturally blinded, at least in part. Why? Because they rejected their Messiah. So God has been working prim primarily through the Gentiles. Is it impossible for a Jew to get saved? No, it's not impossible for a Jew to get saved. But it is harder than it would have been or than it was before the last rejection when God was trying to still bring in the kingdom. 
So, we're opening the eyes of the Hebrews to their Messiah. The book, the context of the book, what is the real teaching or purpose of this book? Uh, that Christianity is superior to Judaism. Could also be that Christ is superior to Judaism. Right, yeah. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. So it teaches Christ is superior to angels. If we were to do a study, Christ is superior to angels, prophets, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, the priesthood, the sacrifices. It goes through and methodically teaches through the book of Hebrews that Christ is superior to all those different things. And probably some others as well. So what is the context of the chapter? Well, the context of the chapter is he is not writing to Hebrews or Jews who had already come to faith in him. So the two blanks are faith and him. So he is writing to Jews who had not come to faith. In, uh, not come to faith, yep. This chapter is an invitation for them to come to faith in Christ. Step over the line of faith. So there's our chapter. And then the passage. What is the writer's fear or concern? What is, what is the context of the passage? So, that for these Jews to have had their eyes opened. What does he say? It's impossible for you who have had your eyes. How does he say it? Uh, 6, chapter 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. There we go. So, for these Jews to have had their eyes open to the reality of Christ, that's the first blank, and actually be convinced that Christianity, blank there is Christianity, is true, and not make a decision concerning him, is to make a decision. If you've gotten to the line where you're standing there and you're convinced beyond all shadows of a doubt that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah to the Jew, the Savior to the world, and you, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is true, you're convinced of it and you're standing at the line and all you've got to do is step over the line and believe, but you don't, you've made a decision. You've decided to reject. Uh, it, you have everything. That's what, this is, that's what this is addressing. The writer wants to let them know they are running the risk of coming to a point of no return in terms of their opportunity to receive Christ. If they, well, I'm just not ready to make a decision, when they really are, but they're choosing not to make a decision, they're making a decision. Does that mean there is no hope for them? At the very least, they are walking a fine line, brother. And doeth it not to him it is sin. Yeah. Yeah, it is unbelief, which what is blasphemy. Who is it that there is no hope for? Those who would blaspheme the Holy Ghost and it's the sin of unbelief. And I think we're getting a good picture of that here in this passage. So, to get this context down, if we look at Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 11, and we're going to work our way down to verse 4. We won't take super long, but it says, Of whom we have many things to say 
and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. Remember, this is writing to the, the Jews, the Hebrews. Their blind, blindness in part has come to Israel. It's talking about Melchizedek, but it's a picture of Christ. So when you boil it down, it's really talking about Christ. Verse 12, For when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So what's he saying? You're still babies in your understanding. He's saying you have need, you should be able to teach other people how to be saved. You should be able to teach other people about Christ. But what he's saying is, we still have to take you back to the Old Testament and show you all the pictures of Christ, which at this point in your life, he's fulfilled all those pictures, and you, you should know, you should be able to show others that all the stuff in the Old Testament points us to Christ. But instead, we have to go back to the Old Testament and show you again and again and again Right, babies, exactly. They should be teaching others, but instead, they have to keep being retaught the same thing over and over and over again. They're not ready for meat, but they're still on milk. Now, it's not the same scenario as when Paul addressed the church at Corinth and said they were babes in Christ and that he had to treat them as such and feed them with milk. It's speaking about these folks. They are babes not able to understand what even the Old Testament pictures are of Christ. Verse 13, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So he doesn't understand the biblical doctrine of righteousness, and specifically that righteousness is through Christ, and not what we saw, looked at a few weeks ago, uh, and actually I'll turn over there quickly, Romans chapter 10 over in Romans chapter number 10, verses 1 through 4. It's, there's, there's a few books right in the middle of Romans that really deal with Jews, and this is one of them. It starts in verse, chapter 9. But it says, brethren, in verse 1, chapter 10 of Romans, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So what he's saying here in Hebrews chapter number 5, that they're still on the milk, and because they're on the milk, they're unskillful in the word of righteousness. They're babies. They don't understand that righteousness isn't coming from the law, but it's coming from Christ. And they're still trying to establish their own righteousness and not grasping what's being taught about the Old Testament and how it points them to Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior. That's why the, the message was just finished up about Melchizedek being a picture of Christ, because they're showing them from the Old Testament. All right, verse 14, and then we'll jump to 6. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, 
even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So, receiving the righteousness of Christ, getting saved, you get the Holy Spirit, and if you've had that experience, then you're going to have the ability to discern good and evil. Because you'll have experienced the salvation, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and being dwelt by the Holy Ghost. Chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, and this will we do if God permit. So what's he saying? Israelites, Jews that are hearing this message, you need to leave the Old Testament law. So, something I forgot to say. The Old Testament, when it comes to Christ, it's like a picture book. And what do we do for babies when we first start teaching them how to read books and how to get into books? What do we give them for books? Do we give them a 1611 uh, King James authorized version Bible and say, here, Katie, read this. It's good for you. It'll help you to grow spiritually. No. We give them a picture book, right? We give them a book with pictures that they can look at and that they can kind of get ideas of what's being said from the pictures. Well, that's what the Old Testament is when it comes to the doctrines of Christ. It's the principal things. It's the basics. The sacrifices, said this this morning, the sacrifices point us to Christ. The tabernacle points us to Christ. The feasts point us to Christ. It all, they're pictures that point us to Christ. So he's saying, Israelites, you need to leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ, and you need to receive him. Stop going back to the beginning and having to rehash this thing over and over and over again, but just receive him as your Savior. All right. Where are we here? Okay. Verses. There we go. Last page. It is for me anyways. I think it is in yours. So what are these verses from Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 actually teach in their context? Well, let's read them one more time. Chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 4 to 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame, to an open shame. So, quickly, two other verses that kind of go along with this. Chapter 10, same book, Hebrews, verse 26. It says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Well, that would sound an awful lot like if somebody's saved and they choose to sin, that they're, they're lost, they're, they're on their way to hell. Verse, was it 29? Yep, verse 29. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So it would seem as though, my goodness, if somebody's saved and they choose to sin, they willfully sin, 
well, then they lose their salvation. Well, how do we explain all this? Well, notice in that verse, I'm just going to point this out. For if we sin willfully after that we received the knowledge of the truth. So we know the truth, but have we actually trusted Christ as our Savior? I would say no. If someone knows the truth, it's going back to the context of what we're talking about here, the direction we're going with this, everything's there. We've got all we need to make the decision to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. The willful sin, I believe, there is the rejection. It's, I'm there, I've got the knowledge, and I'm saying no, and I'm turning and walking away. That was my chance, or at least that was one of my chances, however many God decides to give us uh, before he says, okay, I'm done with you, which is kind of where, where this is heading here. So with all that God has done to bring you to Christ, if you fall away from that, oh, blank there, blanks there, fall away. From that line of faith, now, if you fall away from that line of faith now, there we go, you'll never step over it. Or at least you may never step over it. Because the chance may be gone. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying God only gives everyone one chance. But how many chances does he give everyone? I don't believe it's unlimited. If God comes and he's working in your heart and he's convicted you through the Holy Ghost and he's convinced you through the Holy Ghost of your sin and your need of a Savior and we're at that point where everything, God has done everything to bring us to the point where it's decision time and we know we need to believe and we say no and we turn and walk away I'm not saying that's a one and only shot, but it may be. Is it worth the gamble? Is it worth the risk? And I, and I believe that's what this is addressing, is that at, ver at the very least, it may be the one and only shot. So back in our text, not saved people, but lost who were ready to be saved. For those who were once enlightened, their eyes were open to the truth. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. Uh, you know, the example was used in a, in a sermon I was listening to of a baby who was just starting to learn to eat baby food. Well, actually, I could use Elijah for an example. I remember when we were getting Elijah in the baby food, and we used to make our own baby food. Mostly Erica made it, but <laughs> I cheered her on. I'm just kidding. So Elijah loved carrots. Elijah loved squash. I don't think he likes squash anymore, huh? Elijah loved sweet potato. You know what's about all three of those things? They're all orange. So Elijah's face was about the color of Erica's sweater <laughs> after a little while. It was orange. She was legitimately orange. So anyways, and then white potatoes. Now, my family was all born up in potato country, up in Aroostook County, the Presque Isle area. So we pretty much grew up with potatoes at just about every meal. You know, we had home fries, french fries, mashed potatoes, baked potatoes. Uh, I mean, it was everything. We even had potato bread. I mean, it was everything. We had potatoes and a lot of stuff. But Elijah didn't like regular old white potatoes. And I thought, how can you even bear the last name Pelkey and not like potatoes? But you'd put potatoes in his mouth, and you know what he did? He'd taste them, 
and spit it out. He, he didn't want it. So he'd get a taste, and he didn't like it, so he spit it out. So is it really that hard for us to read this and to see and have tasted of the heavenly gift? But it doesn't mean that they had received for themselves the heavenly gift. God is working. He's done everything, or he's doing everything to bring them to the point of trusting him. They, they've been enlightened and they've tasted, they're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. When someone gets saved, personally, I believe the Holy Ghost has to be at work on them. He has to be moving in their heart, in their mind, however you want to put it. The Holy Ghost has to be working for them to truly be saved. So, they've been enlightened, they've tasted, the Holy Ghost is working. Verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God. Remember Jeremiah? He ate it. They, the, he ate the words of God. Well, they've tasted them, but they didn't consume them. And the powers of the world to come, did, did Israel, did God not do many signs and wonders in, in Israel? They saw the miracles of Jesus Christ. They saw the miracles the apostles did. So they tasted of those good works, the powers of the world to come. Verse 6, if they shall fall away, who? The ones who were enlightened, the ones who tasted of the heavenly gift, the ones whom the Holy Ghost was working on them and convicted and convinced them. Uh, they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again, it's impossible to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So what's it saying? I, I believe what it's saying is that if God has done all those things to bring them to the point, now again, this is Israel, the Jew. God's done all those things to bring them to the point of believing, of trusting in him as their personal savior. And they say, nope. And they walk away and they reject him. Well then, he may never do that again for them. That may have been their one and only shot. Now, if somebody knocks on their door and gives them the gospel, and they say not interested, now that's it's not the same as what's taking place here. If they're sitting in a church service and they hear the gospel preached and they think, huh, that's interesting. That's still not the same thing as what this is talking about. This is talking their eyes are open so they can see the truth. They've tasted. The Holy Ghost is working on them. They're convinced it's all come together, and they know what they need to do. And they say, no, I will not receive Christ as my Savior. Well then, that's it. That may be it. And, and for many, I think it is. So if they've gotten to this point, everything's working to bring them to salvation, and yet they reject him. They are saying that Christ deserved to be crucified. That's why it says, uh, that's why it says they want to crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. They're essentially saying, ah, Christ deserved to die. No, we deserve to die. And they, they're essentially saying he needs to be crucified again. Now, one final thought and I'm done. I'll be quick. This passage is used sometimes to say that we can lose our salvation. I've never heard of anyone who's actually said this, but 
What does it actually say about if we lose our salvation according to this verse? Verse 4 said, it is impossible. Verse number 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again. So according to this passage, if it means we can lose our salvation, then once it's lost, it's gone. (laughs) You're not getting it back. It's it. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified to him uh, to <laughs> crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. That's pretty strong. I've never heard anybody who believes you can lose your salvation say that once you lose it, you can never get it back again. But if we're going to stay consistent, and if this means what they say it means, then once they've lost it, might as well eat, drink, and be merry because you can't get it again. <laughs> you know, once you lose it, it's gone. So, anyways. I thought that was kind of a neat, neat point. Brother Elliot? Yeah. Misplaced, misapplied, and misinterpreted. Yeah, why'd you use ladies? <laughs> oh, miss. Okay, I got it now. I whew, went right over my head. I'm like, what are you saying about the ladies, brother? <laughs> now I get it. Now I get it. I'm a little slow. <laughs> you can't misinterpret it. <laughs> now I get it. Okay. All right. Anybody else have a, a thought or comment or anything? Hopefully we have fun studying some of these things. Oops. I have a lot of fun studying them. I've really been enjoying it. So next week, prayerfully, the UPS company does their job and delivers the postcards to our house. I think there's seven boxes coming. (laughs) So they've got quite a a pile to bring. But um, prayerfully that happens. And if, if it all comes together, then next Sunday afternoon, like I said, we'll use the afternoon service to sort them all out because we'll need so many thousand for this town so many thousand and they got to be bundled i think it's a hundred per stack wrapped in rubber bands yeah we'll get rubber bands so there's a whole process as to how that works to do the every door direct mailers through the post office but um, so that'll probably be what we'll do next week and then the week after that i think it's comparing spiritual things with spiritual for the afternoon service so it's talking about using cross references to understand the bible comparing scripture with scripture so that's a fun one too but all right let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer and we'll fellowship as we go our heavenly father thank you for today thank you for your word and for the good day you've given us i pray you be with those who weren't able to be here today work in them and uh, those that are sick or ill or had something going on they couldn't be here i pray you'd help them Uh, lord bless the rest of our day help us to live for you and serve you Help us to love you all the more. Help us to do diligence in studying your word to understand it. It is hard work. It does take study. Um, But God, I pray that you would help us to love your word and to love you so that we are willing to put in the effort so we can know you better. Lord, I just pray bless the rest of our day. 